HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us on this hour of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, we are embracing the breadbasket of America. Agriculture is the industry responsible for putting food on our tables. And it's also an economic engine for many parts of the Midwest. Ag organizations across the country support the efforts of generations of farmers to develop leadership skills, learn new industry practices, and provide a sense of community. We are lucky to be joined by some great guests representing three of these groups. Brett Evans, a supervised agriculture experience education specialist from the Future Farmers of America, or FFA, shares how the FFA is empowering youth and training more than just future farmers. Mike Anderson, a program specialist with the Iowa 4-H, gives us a front row seat to the work of his state's 4-H organization. But first, let's welcome Amanda Rosanna Rios, the Director of Membership, Leadership, Development, and Communications with the National Grange. Amanda, we're so happy that you can join the program and tell our audience about the National Grange, something that I don't know a lot of folks, uh, particularly outside of rural, rural America, are familiar with. Um, so first and foremost, thank you for coming and, um, let's jump right into it. Tell us, um, what is the National Grange? How to get started? It's an interesting story, especially considering our, our time and our climate today. Uh, just after the civil war, one of our primary founders was tasked with going through the South and doing an, basically an audit of what was happening, um, with the agricultural, uh, landscape there, because we knew we had. Uh, you know, had a lot of farms burned and, you know, destruction and things. And the government wanted to understand how we were going to feed our people, you know. And um, in doing this, they sent a man, Oliver Hudson Kelly, who was from Boston originally, but by way of Minnesota at that point, um, to the South. And he got just the reaction you would assume, which was, boy, carpetbagger, you don't need to be here. Um, And there was a lot of hesitation to let him onto farms or let him do the work. Mm. He was a Mason and he had a lot of ties having this Masonic background where he would Mm -hmm. go and meet other Masons in these towns and say, I'm a Mason. And they would immediately introduce them, you know, to their friends or, or, you know, fellow farmers or whatever. Um, And when he went back to DC, he talked with, several other folks who were kind of influential in different um, organizations like Masons and Odd Fellows, as well as in agriculture, uh, William Saunders, who was at the, the botanical uh, at that time and had helped set up um, a bunch of different things in agriculture in DC. And he said, you know, I think there needs to be a farm fraternity. There's 75% of the nation that's farming. And if we are going to bring the nation back together, we are going to, find a way to bridge this gap uh, 
it should be through a fraternal organization. And so hmm. he and these seven men, well, six other men, and his niece, Carolyn Hall, who as soon as she heard he was doing this, wrote to him and said, if you are going to make a fraternity for farm fam- farmers work, you cannot have it succeed if you do not include women. And however she persuaded these seven men, uh, 1867 rolls around, they unveil this grange that the, na- the grange of the order of patrons of husbandry, this fraternal organization, um, with women equally included in not only like voice and being able to go into the meetings, but actually there's four offices that were retained just for women, created just for women so that women couldn't be excluded and put maybe just in the the kitchen or whatever. Do you know the argument that, you know, for including women in an organization related to farming? I do. And, and there are a couple of strands of this one women on the farm are doing more than just sitting at home, you know, crocheting all day. Um, typically farm women, especially once you get um, past the Mississippi at this point, mm-hmm. we're putting in just as hard slogging hours, you know, in the fields or in some service to making that operation work. Sure. Uh, you know, they're going out and helping birth cows and, you know, kind of the, the, the image that we conjure up when we talk, we think about modern or, or the, the, you know, rugged pioneer woman almost. Right. Right. And, and these women were making decisions for their families in a lot of cases, um, especially after the civil war, you've got a lot of farms that whether by deed of property are being run by women or owned by women are being mm-hmm. run by women. Um, and the, part of the Grange that talks about this fraternalism and this raising the quality of life standard for all Mm. farmers at the time um, has to include these women who all of the people on these farms, because of the tracts of acreage and the the distance to town and things like that are, are suffering what we know today as isolation. Um, Right. And so if you're going to have this thing that these men can go to when there's already things for men to go to um, and you're going to continue to exclude women like the tradition of everyone else, it's just not going to work well um, because you need that group there. And then the final part I think was, and I, again, this may fall back into a little bit of gender roles, but we know that the farm kids become the farm owners. And we know especially that young men and women work on farms in ways that we don't work in industrial society at early ages. Um, And so there is this teaching and learning that's happening daily. And the Grange had as a big component education and really progressive ideas about science and technology in farming Mm make things easier and more profitable for those farmers. And so the kids, you know, at, at age 14, you can become a member of the Grange. That is something that still remains today, um, a full voting member, but the kids were welcome in those halls uh, oftentimes, or at least to go to and from the meetings, they may not be in the halls. Um, and they're hearing some of the things that mom and dad are, are hearing and learning about working a farm better, doing, doing this job. So, you know, we've talked a lot about how the Grange is very reflective of um, a lot of the values that are are core to American society and relevant to some of the, the challenges that we're facing today. And, um, you know, you know, as well as I, that, you know, oftentimes rural communities are maybe stereotyped as being homogeneous and not having a lot of, you know, uh, ethnic, cultural, or, or racial diversity, but um, that's not always the case. And just as the Grange was um, ahead of their time, so to speak, with including women as equals in their organization, um, it's my understanding that, um, you know, African-Americans, Black farmers were also involved early on. Um, that's an important story to tell. Um, what can you tell us about about that? So you're right. Uh, Grange, from the very beginning, was this progressive organization that we don't think a lot 
about um, where you would have integration, not just in the genders that we talked about before, but also with with racial equity and and making sure that there was inclusion of farmers who, you know, were of color or native farmers. Um, and in our documents, when we go back, we can find writings from our founders to a group of black farmers from Mississippi who are looking to start something very similar to Grange, looking to start a, a labor group or some type of fraternal social order for sharecropping and, and black farmers at the time. And while the the founders writings, you know, certainly say we're, we're welcome to talk to you a little bit about uh, what Grange is like and how we've, we've navigated some of this. You're always welcome here. And, and the money where their mouth was, they meant it. There were Grange chapters that were predominantly, but not always exclusively uh, black in Kentucky and Minnesota and in various places, especially various places in the South that you would not have expected an integration that happened. And then there were from very early on in our history, Hispanic Granges um, predominantly in Texas, where you find obviously a, a lot of Hispanic folks, you know, because it was Mexico. I mean, Texas and all always in the U S and you find native American farmers before we had the Dakota, uh, you know, the Dakotas as they are now, you had the Dakota territory before you had Oklahoma as it is now you had the Indian territory and we have tons of charters, you know, and if you look at the names, you can only extrapolate that, that these were native farmers. So it's interesting to me that while Grange has certainly a, a larger cultural presence in the white community, and there are definitely more white members um, across the board in our nation or in our, our national Grange and in our Granges today. Um, and there were, I think that is so often overlooked of how truly they meant anyone of good moral character is welcome here. Well, I, obviously it's changed over the, the decades and centuries. How would they get this information that they would I would assume, disseminate in their Grange halls and the meetings? First of all, agriculture is one of the biggest citizen sciences, as I like to call it. Mm, we, I like that. We learn by doing, and we are not trained biologists or geologists or ologists of any sort often. I mean, it wasn't until Grange and other organizations or other entities really pushed for this you know, land grant college system, um, that there was a type of, you know, institutionalized training. So if Bob had a good crop in 1872 and he had happened to use a different type of fertilizer because it was available to him, you know, he, he took chickens on his farm for the first year, um, in bulk and he's using the, the chicken, uh, waste as fertilizer, for example, in one section of that field. And wow, it did twice as well as my other stuff. He would come and talk about it. So the citizen science model was certainly there. Um, and then you have a local grange and then you have what's called a Pomona grange, which is the collection of granges in that region or that County who would meet uh, fairly regularly. And then you have the state grange and then you have the national grange. And at every single one of these levels, there are 13 officers uh, who are elected. And one of them is called the lecturer. And their entire duty is at every meeting, be prepared to provide something educational or, or entertaining. And most often, if you look at a lot of these records, they were bringing something very backyard educational. So they had gone to the Pomona meeting or they'd gone to the state meeting or they themselves were involved in something that, you know, had exposure outside of Grange to other, uh, you know, farms or, or things like that. Maybe they were a, a seed seller in their professional mm -hmm. life or something. And they would come in and be able to talk about this because there is a reserved space in every meeting. And that model just seemed to really work. But then when Grange really got involved in this, uh, land grant college push and in seeing, uh, you know, education embrace agriculture and, and the higher ed level and things like that. Um, it was some of our members, and I'm not saying 
you know, it, it may have just been happenstance, but it was some of our members who created FFA and created 4-H. And if you sure. look at FFA today, sure. the colors are the same as ours. The Some of the symbols are the same. They don't do the same thing and they have a amazing function. And, and I, you know, don't by any means want the audience to think that we are taking credit for it. But it was really neat to see that this these people who had come to the Grange and found a soul in a home there wanted to see something for kids in different realms, you know, and they'd already had some of this passion stoked, I assume, in some of these Grange halls. Sure, sure. If we were to walk into a Grange hall today, what would what would we experience uh, in in those meetings? Sure. So the first thing is you may not walk into a Grange hall. Um, from from very, very beginnings, we did. We had halls because that's what you do, because you have a place to meet. Um, but today, there are a number of Granges that exist without halls, and mine is one of them in Pennsylvania. And our members talk a lot about what it would mean to us to have a home. Um, so we do understand the value of that. But I think the first thing is you might find these Granges meeting in your community in places that you would not have expected. But when you go into a Grange meeting, there are the one great thing about Grange is it is grassroots and there's a structure, but there's an allowance for personalization with everything from your service projects and your advocacy to some of the way in which your meeting was conducted. Um, there's expectations that when you walk in and you sit down, uh, you will hear, as they called meeting to order, not just a wrap of a gavel, but somebody saying the hour of labor has arrived and the work of another day demands our attention. And oh, wow. that's the way in which we call ourselves to order. And I love that phrasing. I mean, you don't get phrasing like that today. I love that so much. Our, our local Grange adopted that as our motto. The work of another day demands our attention. Well, and there's nothing that's more true when it comes to than, than right. you know, operating in an agricultural setting where, frankly, every day is different and there are things out of your control, whether it's, you know, climate and pests and, you know, a whole host of things. Absolutely. And you will look around the room and you will see that you have a lot of folks who are not engaged in agriculture in the traditional sense. They may be engaged in food service or food delivery or something related to agriculture. But then there's people like me. Now, I guess I'm engaged in agriculture because I'm part of the Grange, but um, who didn't grow up on a farm and, and has never been actively involved in agriculture. But like, I really like growing my own plants. But more than that, I really like knowing where my food comes from. I like knowing my producers. I like when the store shelves were bare in the pandemic last year. I was not as worried because I knew where mm. to go if necessary. And so you will find a lot of folks in that room who the language of some of the rest of the stuff um, may not escape them, but may not make that, that profound of an impact. Um, and they will get their meeting off with the typical roll call of officers and secretaries minutes and uh, the report of the secretary and treasurer. But then they will go into things like the lecturers program, which today sometimes is agriculture related, sometimes is related to things that are really important to rural Americans um, who we know are on average older, who we know on average are sicker, who we know on average, you know, tend to skew, you know, in, in various directions. Um, and so you might find them instead of reporting on what's going on with the farm bill um, or how to grow a better crop of beans, talking about a new Medicare expansion issue um, and what the Grange has to say on that policy. Um, because our, our policy and our focus fairly soon after the Grange really got off the ground within about the first 25 years started moving to people involved in agriculture, not just active farmers. And then mm -hmm. not too long after that to this rural community, because we realized that, you know, it, it does take the farmers, wife, husband, whatever spouses, whatever it is to run a farm. But it also takes somebody in town to run the post office and somebody in town right. to run this and that and the next thing. And what they are experiencing living in rural America is obviously the same as what the, the farmer is experiencing in lack of services or 
you know, some type of inequity. Um, so they were pretty quickly welcomed in as well. And so you'll find a lot of these folks sitting there learning about issues that are not just agriculture based. Um, right. Typically you're going to find a potluck either at the beginning or the end. And I think this can't be overstated as an important element of range because we are from day one, a nonpartisan organization yes. who does not endorse candidates who really relies on, even in some of the language that we remind people of as we do the closing um, that the president of the organization will say each time to be quiet, peaceful citizens, which really translates today into being civil to one another. And those potlucks, those times where we just argued about whether or not Medicare should be expanded or whether or not term limits should be a thing or, you know, whether or not the, the local um, school should encourage masking of kids. I mean, this is, again, everything that you're dealing with in your rural life. Um, we could have had a terrible argument, but we go sit down next to each other. And I think that's also part of why Grange is important for not just farm families to be engaged in, but anyone in that rural community to be engaged in because you're getting a perspective of life that is not yours. You're balancing it with the life that you live, the worldview that you have. And at the same time, you're learning why the human next to you is a human you can like. You're getting down to that very basic level of everybody eats three times a day, mostly. Um, and, you know, everybody needs this fuel to propel them forward. And so, I think if there is one thing that I really like to make sure to say to people is make sure at the end of your Grange meeting or the beginning of your Grange meeting, you are upholding that, that tradition of the potluck um, because you will find the humanity in the world in the time that you spend sitting across the table from someone. If someone wants to learn how to, to learn more about the Grange or to join the Grange, because as you've just described, you don't necessarily need to be in, involved, you know, directly in the agriculture sector. Um, how could one do that? Sure. So obviously our website, nationalgrange.org, is the easiest place to go um, and to see us in action. I think you see, see better um, representation of what local granges are doing through our Facebook page because we're able to share a lot of the information that they share um, or on our, our National Grange Community Service Group on Facebook. But um, we are definitely interested in connecting individuals with their local granges. Um, it's something that anybody can reach out to me at membership at nationalgrange.org or even my phone number, which I make very public at 301-943-1090 um, to find out where the grange is close to you. But we are going through a period that we have never experienced before. I mean, I thought four or five years ago that we look similar to 1867. Um, but you combine 1867 and the pandemic of 1918 and squish them all together with maybe like the depression era. And that's what we're looking at today, just in, in terms of what our, our people are facing. Right. And so um, we are looking to bring Grange chapters to communities because I believe, I think our, our members believe that, this model is necessary in order to do exactly what our founders set out to do, which is find ways to connect communities, bring people together, allow them to talk, allow them to get back to the essentials um, of the food network, of the local um, shop owners, of, of sustainability and resilience of your community. Because while absolutely uh, having a all of the, the national options, the, the benefits of, you know, being a great and strong nation are available to us because we live here in America. We, we won't live in a great and strong nation without great and strong hometowns. And so um, I really encourage anybody, if you go onto our website and you go to our find a Grange and you don't find a Grange near you, or if you know that there's a Grange in your hometown, but you know, you are potentially interested in joining and doing new things to reach out to me because we are actively expanding right now um, with communities that are interested in seeing us in Missouri, you know, in Kentucky, in Alabama, in Mississippi, 
in New Mexico in places that we have had granges in the past, but haven't had them in a long time. Um, or Utah and Hawaii, where we've never had granges. The only two states in our nation. Yeah. Well, I thank you for sharing that information. And P.S. That was not paid. <laughs> this is not a sponsorship <laughs> or a plug. Um, this is just this is important information because a lot of people have never heard of the Grange. Um, and I think if they, you know, were for, you know, became more familiar um, with the mission uh, and the activity that sh- that the Grange does, as you just said, at a time like this. Um, they really might get interested and in uh, getting engaged uh, because, like you just said as well, um, a strong country is based on strong hometowns, um, and that starts with one community organization at a time. So, thank you, thank you so so very much, Amanda, for joining us, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you, My Family Recipe, from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough, and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. We are now joined by Brett Evans, a supervised agriculture experience education specialist from the Future Farmers of America. Brett, thank you for joining Eat Your Heartland Out. Um, I am really um, happy to have you on to tell our audience about the Future Farmers of America or FFA. Now for me, and maybe for others, you know, we, we associate the FFA with those blue jackets, uh, with the emblem on the back and the state name on the back. And, um, you know, I recall seeing, you know, all these groups of kids, um, you know, down on Capitol Hill from different states visiting, uh, their, their congressmen and their senators with FFA. Uh, and then later on, um, you know, really understanding, um, the role that FFA plays in, uh, you know, getting, um, the next generation of people that make our food um, trained up. So um, that's my little recollection, but we know the FFA is so much more, which is why you are on the show today, Brett. Um, so uh, why don't we just start off um, with you um, giving us a little bit of insight on how the FFA was was formed. Okay. Um, so first of all, um, we the name of our organization is now, now the National FFA Organization. FFA still does stand for Future Farmers of America, but in 1988, so that we could better reflect the broad scope of agriculture, um, we made the official name the National FFA Organization. Um, The Future Farmers of America started in 1928. Uh, It was started in conjunction with the Kansas City Royal Stock Show. Um, for many, many years, that stock show had been inviting uh, livestock judging teams from around the country to come and, and compete at the stock show. And I don't know all the details, but it originated and at the Mulebach Hotel, and there is still a, a big plaque, um, as in like six feet by six feet, on the side of the building where that hotel used to stand in Kansas City, mm-hmm. downtown. Uh, commemorating that the National FFA organization uh, was started there by a group of farm boys, and it was only boys, and the blue jackets didn't exist yet, but they came together, and their original purpose was to help uh, especially take rural youth, farm boys, the way they put it, and give them some experiences in cities and in travel, Mm-hmm. and to increase their skills in production agriculture. Over the years, of course, we have greatly expanded. 
um, women joined and, and greatly enhanced our organization. Um, the Originally, there was also the New Farmers of America, which was another organization mm-hmm. for um, African-American students, though FFA was not uh, a segregated organization. There was that separate organization. And the two also joined, and I believe that was in 1969. Mm. Um, So we've just continued to grow. Last year, um, before, so of course we're looking at membership numbers before the pandemic, FFA was at a record high number of members. Mm. And um, over the course of all the the. The interesting year we all had last year and the, and the difficulties at schools, we took a little dip, but I think pretty much everything in education did. Right. <laughs> um, but that's one thing I, I, many people are like, oh, you know, has your organization been decreasing or, you know, shrinking with the changing world? I'm like, no, it's, it's continuing to grow and we have more and more people to feed. Um, what could I maybe... Well, so so t- so tell me then why why do you uh, think that the FFA is growing? Um, what what do you attribute that to? I mean, outside of as you were saying, more people there's more people to feed, but there is this perception that you know people are leaving the farms, people are looking for other opportunities, um, and um, you know small farms are are going by the wayside and and those sort of things. So I think that's a great question. I and, and this is my own own opinion, but I would attribute it to a couple of things. Um, first, there's a, been a real awakening in the last few decades of people wanting to know uh, where their food comes from, what's it in, its impact on the environment, um, where, you know, the, the production methods, what's in their food. All of these things have helped people realize that the food doesn't just spontaneously appear on the grocery store shelves. Right. Um, and I believe the last statistic I heard is that most of our population in the U S is three to four generations away from the farm. Hmm. Um, so there's, um, kids growing up now, um, a generation. I personally, I'm two generations off the farm. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as an actual production, my father, uh, did work on a cattle ranch, but, and my grandfather owned one, but. I am a full generation from ever having been raised in actual production agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we have so many people that are starting to wonder, where does all this stuff come from? And then, of course, the news is filled with, uh, you know, don't eat this. Do eat that. This is dangerous. This is good for you. Right. Um, and, and the impacts on the environment. Farming's good. Farming's bad. Farming sure. does these things. And so all of those spark an interest. And yeah, the that other... makes a lot of sense. I mean, people, you know, when you put it in that context, it really does make a lot of sense given the, given the trends uh, that, that people are looking at, you know, whether it is trying to figure out where things come from, uh, what they consume, you know, this sort of farm-to-table movement, uh, being concerned about, you know, pesticides and uh, climate change, you know, you name it. And, and all of these things do, do uh, I think, spark a curiosity, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say absolutely contributes is FFA has, has always been a very growing and dynamic organization in that we we change. Um, if we were still an organization that was only interested in taking rural farm boys to the city to see the sites, we would have been dead a long time ago, obviously. Um, as agriculture has grown from you know a large portion of the f- population being in some form of production agriculture to less than 2% now. But the realization is that there are more and more careers in agriculture and everything mm-hmm. from, you know, if you want to go on the organic side uh, to the, the ultimate in genetic mani- manipulation and everything in between. Um, the environmental impacts, how do we mitigate, how do we en- enhance the environment, how do we help produce more food on less space? Um, how, while main, making sure that it's all sustainable and healthy. Um, and those things are of, of incredible interest. Students who are interested in science, students who are interested in public policy, mm-hmm. uh, students who are interested in uh, public speaking and in hands-on learning. These are all things that agricultural education, 
which is, of course, where we stem from, uh, provide in the schools. Um, agricultural education and FFA as part of that, our, our biggest thing is hands-on education that rather than just showing it to you in a book and lecturing to you about it, we're going to get your hands in it and your nose in it and let you experience it. And I think that is something that students um, are really seeking to have that, and not just watching it on a screen, but to actually, you know, stick your hands in the dirt or grab the animal or or pick up the microphone, microscope, not microphone, <laughs> and, and investigate these things in their classrooms. Yeah, no, no question about it. I mean, there is, you know, so much opportunity there for personal growth, you know, those critical thinking skills, those problem solving skills, those team building skills, you know, it really, you know, having that experience, um, you know, can't be replicated, like you said, on a screen. Uh, one thing that really surprised me um, uh, that um, I believe you had mentioned to me uh, before off air is that FFA and and uh, the agricultural um, education programs aren't just for rural communities and rural sc- school districts. Um, some of the largest urban school districts in the country have uh, big FFA chapters. Isn't that right? That's correct. Um, there's a very, I, I don't know if it still is or not, but at one time it was the largest chapter in the United States is in downtown Chicago. I've actually visited that school. Uh, there's another chapter, at least one, in New York City itself. And those chapters, uh, especially because of the agricultural science ties, um, but again, they want to know where their food comes from and, and where it's produced and all of those things that we've just talked about. But very, very much, again, FFA would not exist if we were only, if we'd continue to stay only in very urb- or rural school districts, um, you know, we wouldn't have the appeal. And we wouldn't be able to reach the broad class and cross sections of people that we do now. Sure, uh, and you know the the supervised agricultural experience uh, that SAE um, that that you lead up um, is is a key component to the education uh, programs that FFA uh, puts on. Um, tell us what um, a typical student who would participate in the SAE. Would um, would experience in the supervised agricultural experience? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. Now you're really into what I do for FFA. So <clears throat> stop me when I get rambling here. Oh, but. go for it. <laughs> so um, we call it our three circle model. Um, in order to be an FFA member, you must be enrolled in a course of agricultural education in the high school. So every student who's enrolled in, in an agricultural education course, part of that course is they are required to have a supervised agricultural experience. We just we shorthand that as our SAE or our or their kids' projects is what we typically call them. Mm-hmm. And the goal there is we teach it in the classroom. You go out and you experience it on your own in a in a real world or at least very closely simulated version of uh, owning your own business or working for someone. So we're just as interested in entrepreneurship as we are in creating employees. And so students have, oh, they have things that range. Let's put it this way. We have an award system that I run that's meant to recognize SAEs. There are 45 different categories. Oh, wow. They range from Agricultural communications, which the conversation we are having, we have opportunities for students to be in the in the print, broadcast, radio, blogs, um, any kind of media where they're working with agriculture, where mm-hmm. they're <clears throat> t- telling the story of agriculture, educating people about agriculture. So that would be agricultural communications at the t- at the top of the alphabet for us. We work our way all the way down through. The the stereotypical things, beef production, dairy production, equine, swine, sheep, and mixed in there, environmental science, um, wildlife management, vegetable production, specialty animal, which can be Mm. ranges from llamas at the big end down to crickets and insects and exotic fish. Yeah, I feel like I I heard a story about... um crickets and rats in Utah? Yeah. <laughs> Can you share that story? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I um, worked in, in for many years in the state of Utah. I was a state director there. We had a chapter, and 
you know, when you're studying animal science, one of the things you're studying is, is genetics and breeding and how does mutation occur and all those things. Well, in large animals, that takes years and years and years to, you know, a, a single cow or a pig is going to live multiple years. And, and so it, it's, it takes a long, long time to see those things happen. Well, this chapter is in a, a I don't, I wouldn't say urban, but very suburban area that's rapidly becoming urban. They had a school shop they had a young teacher move in who wasn't super interested in welding, but was very interested in animal science. And in order to teach those same principles about, you know, nutrition and care for animals and all, and keeping their needs so they grow optimally, they started off with crickets. And you can produce multiple generations of crickets very quickly. And you can see that if you take a spotted one and a stripy one, and I'm making things up here, but, (laughs) and and you um, breed them together, you know, do you get a checkerboarded one? Obviously, I'm being facetious, but they, they really can see those kind of things very quickly. Can they right. make the legs longer? Can they? And, and all simply through selection. Wow. Um, that grew to then, well, what do we do with all these crickets? Well, I, I think it was a student had a snake that they didn't want anymore and brought it to the, the school for the teacher because they had a terrarium. And the school began, this chapter began breeding uh, ball pythons. And they, well, of course, then they needed to feed them. And then they started breeding rats and mice. And all of these, are, of course, in very controlled circumstances. But these students can have the same experience of animal husbandry and animal science, but they're using, you know, a, a, what was a school shop and a greenhouse instead of a, a big farm. And that's one heck of a creative slash gross, um, in my (laughs) um, way to go about it. But I, I, you know, I wanted you to tell that story because it's so reflective of the way that, you know, FFA and these educational programs can adapt and evolve uh, literally and figuratively, um, you know, into sort of the needs and interests of individual communities. Yeah, it's been, I've seen some incredible stuff about, you know, how teachers will, find what they have what they can and can't do in an area and how they will teach principles in in new and exciting ways um, I've seen it done with fish uh, I've seen it done with instead of growing fields of corn and wheat and barley they're they're growing herb gardens in windowsills um, so they're but they can always teach these principles um, just with doing smaller and different things. And there's a, there's a great place. We, we have chapters that have farms, uh, that the school owns an orchard or the school owns a land lab or the school owns, um, barns and livestock facilities. And those are wonderful too, but not, you know, obviously that's not going to fit in downtown New York. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely, uh, you know, again, you're adapting to, to the, the environment and the needs of those students. Um, now, you also do competitions, right, yes. uh, as part of all of this? Um, give us some examples. So, uh, again, what I mentioned earlier was we call our Agricultural Proficiency Awards. And on those, a student is basically they're reporting on what they've done in their SAE project. Um, to be very competitive at those, you need a bare minimum of two years. and You're better off with three to five years. And it's a, a written application that they're reporting their finances. They're reporting the things they've learned. Uh, we have a list of skills which have been defined for agricultural education. And, and these are the ones that I've learned. And here's what I've done in those areas. Uh, this is my business or this is my employment. And so that's a, an application process. And we had about 1,300 applications this year. We just finished. In fact, we're in the final stages of declaring winners this week. Um, so that's one area of competition. Uh, my peers, we have an agricultural science fair. Um, she just finished going through somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 agri-science agri- fair project applications. Wow. Uh, and again, these are all filtered up to us. So this isn't how many there were. This is how many won at a chapter level and then at a state level to then filter up to us at the national level. Right. Uh, another area of competition is the National Chapter Award, and this is awarding, rewarding chapters for uh, their community involvement and the things that they're doing to grow their members and grow their community. 
Uh, my other peers here have 26 different competitions. Oh, um, wow. And those range from parliamentary procedure. Uh, it's one of the things FFA is known for, actually, is for teaching parliamentary procedure. And those students actually are in teams, and they're given a subject, and they are they debate it and pass the motions, and they're judged on how they correctly handle it and how um, intelligent they well, handle we, it. Well, we we need to elect more F- former FFA into <laughs> into the uh, legislatures and and mm-hmm. higher up. I can We're, tell you, we need more of those people that understand <laughs> parliamentary procedure. As a former elected myself, so well, I'm certainly not gonna not gonna disagree with you on that one. <laughs> Um, you know, and then, uh, of course, there's traditional competitions, judging livestock, um, judging crops. But even those have evolved from instead of simply uh, looking at a class of animals and, and ranking them to, okay, here's all their breeding records and here's what we want. You know, here's the goal. How would you accomplish it? Here's, the, here's you know, they'll give them scenarios. Um, other competitions include uh, food science and technology. Mm-hmm. Students actually are given a list of, uh, here, I'm the customer, and I want a product that has this much shelf life, that falls in this cost range, and will feed this many people, and, and here's your ingredients. And the students have to take that project to develop a food product, market it, package it and explain how they would get it from basically from the farm to the grocery store shelf. Um, prepared public speaking, extemporaneous public speaking, mm-hmm. um, environmental science and natural resources is a huge competition. Forestry, they're actually you know going in and assessing uh, not only the health of the forest, but how would we um, harvest timber? How much timber is available? How do you... Um, you know, reclaim that ground? How do you make that sustainable? Oh, let's see. Uh, you're, you're right. I mean, you could go on and on and, <laughs> and, uh, and not in a bad way. I mean, like, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but no, it no. is, it is a, I am just blown away by the amount of, um, you know, of, of projects and the complexity and the variety that uh, the FFA programs offer to to students. I mean, and they really are preparing um, preparing students for you know being future leaders, not just future farmers. Um, before I let you go, because we are running out of time, um, um, is there anything that you'd like our listeners to know, particularly those who are not maybe they're hearing about the FFA for the first time? Um, what would you like them to know about the the organization? So I would say this would be my big plug. If you have students, if you have young people that are going to be educated and you want them to have real-world applicable experiences in, in science, in public speaking, in, in, so, in, in living, that there are agricultural education programs, over 10,000 of them around the country, and it's not just, this is our old saying, it's not just sows, cows, and plows. I love those, that. Those are super important, and they're part of what feeds us, um, but there's so much more. And the other thing I would say is if you are wondering, why am I trying to talk you into caring about agriculture three times a day, I hope at least three times a day, you are having an agricultural experience when you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it's important to you. Uh, whether you want to think about it or not, agriculture is essential for your life and for our lifestyles. And as whether as a somebody in the agriculture industry or simply as a consumer, you need to be educated about where that essential part of your survival comes from. Well, what a great place to, to end uh, because you're right. We all absolutely need to eat and we also need to have respect for the land and for the farmers that, that bring those, uh, produce those uh, ingredients that uh, come to our table uh, every day. So thank you so much for joining us on Eat Your Heartland Out. Thank you for the opportunity. Our final guest this hour is Mike Anderson, Program Specialist at the Iowa 4-H. Mike, thank you for joining the program. Uh, There is no way that I could have um, an episode dedicated to uh, rural organizations and uh, and youth education without 
talking to someone from the 4-H. So thank you for joining us. Yes, glad to be here. Well, uh, you and I are very familiar, obviously, with the 4-H. You certainly more than I, uh, seeing the fact that you are uh, a 4-H program specialist there in Iowa. Um, but there are a lot of people that may not be as familiar uh, with the 4-H as, as we are. So um, provide us with a, a little bit of background about uh, what the 4-H is and, and, its, and its history and mission. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, 4-H is the uh, largest youth development program in the country, and I don't think probably a lot of folks realize that, um, but we do touch on a lot of, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of youth lives each year across the country. Um, most, most every state has a 4-H youth development program. Um, it was uh, stems from the land-grant um, university um, over 100 years ago that was established um, that certain um, land-grant universities dedicated time um, to take that information from those universities out to the people, hence the word extension. So we're extending our right. learning and knowledge from the universities and taking that out to, used to be an adult audience, but from the 4-H world, that would be out to a youth audience. So we're taking um, knowledge that we have about all of our different project areas um, and helping youth learn about those. And so for most people that would have a, a history of 4-H, um, that they typically typically think of animals, livestock, some mm -hmm. of those sewing projects from when it first started. Um, but we've really tried to branch out into, we've got a lot of different project areas, um, not only in Iowa, but across the whole country in 4-H, um, as far as photography and robotics and, and all those different types of projects. So we're really trying to expand that reach um, into new audiences and not lose our, our heritage, you know, in, in agriculture. Um, in Iowa, we have um, about 23,000 4-H club youth members, and two-thirds of those are involved in a livestock project. So obviously, mm -hmm. ag and livestock is, is kind of our heritage and, and what we're still strong in, but we don't want to limit ourselves to that. So um, we're trying to increase marketing and outreach efforts to, to let youth and, and parents and families know that 4-H isn't just agriculture and animals. Um, there's a whole breadth of other project areas that youth can get involved in. Well, I definitely want uh, you to educate us on, on those other areas which the 4-H is reaching out into. Um, but uh, let's actually start with uh, the heritage, as you called it. Um, something that, you know, I, I certainly know going to, you know, every county fair around me in Ohio and, and, in, and the state fair as well, those livestock projects, as you said, where, you know, kids are, you know, raising anything from cattle to ducks and, and you know, rabbits um, and then selling them usually um, at, uh, at the fair and the junior fair, as we call it, um, at least, you know, in, in my backyard in Ohio. Um, so walk us through, um, you know, a, a typical um, ag or livestock project for uh, a 4-H club member. Yeah, that's a that's a big question, um, and that a lot of that depends on the project area that the youth is involved in. Um, if we look at the like the beef animal project area, that's a, a long term one. Um, so typically, the youth right now in the fall are going out and purchasing, or if they're raising their own uh, beef animals to show, um, they're purchasing those animals kind of right now in this September, October, November months for the upcoming year. So those um, cattle are typically, you know eight months old or so, somewhere in there, six, seven, eight months old. And so the youth are selecting those, but they're not obviously going to exhibit those until next summer um, at maybe their local county fair or state fair, some of the national regional type shows that, that are available for those. So the beef project, for example, is a long, much longer part of the year. Uh, we get into mm -hmm. some of our other project areas like our poultry project and some of those that are much shorter, um, like our market broiler project that we have for youth um, those kids get those um, hatched chicks, baby chicks, um, in late June, and they already exhibit those about six weeks, six to eight weeks later um, in August at the state fair. So that's one of those kind of other end of the spectrum where that's a really short-term type project. Um, the youth obviously are learning, you know, throughout the year and what their goals are for their project. And so it depends on the species as far as um, the length of time that's invested. But a lot of the youth, you know, spend their time um, during the summer working on those projects, no matter what it is, if it's sheep or goats or horses or dogs um, and those types of things, you know, summer's kind of their 
their main focal point as far as spending time and caring for those animals, um, getting them ready for the fair, for exhibition. And so it, it does depend on the project area of how much time and obviously how much money um, is spent to, you know, beef cattle and some of those larger animal projects um, take some more investment up front to purchase those animals, whereas some of the smaller projects like rabbits, um, you know, it doesn't cost as much money typically <laughs> to purchase a, a rabbit or a chicken or something like that as compared to um, a horse project or a, a steer market beef project and those types of things. So it does depend kind of on the project area that you're going to pick. Well, you mentioned cost and, and, you know, this is something that I was, I was wondering about as I'm listening to, you know, the complexity and the length of time for things like beef and, and swine, for example. But it's my understanding that at least in some circumstances, um, you know, 4-H has taken that into account and, and has that cost and has, um, you know, partnered maybe with other organizations and with producers to try to defray some of those costs as to ensure that, you know, uh, kids aren't being left out or, or, you know, not able to participate due to their financial means. Yes, you're exactly right. And um, in Iowa, we've had multiple counties that are kind of using that example as you laid out a little bit um, on some of our project areas where our swine project is a good example here in Iowa, um, where we have local producers at the county level um, that will provide those animals for the youth. And then those youth, um, you know, will take turns or sign up as far as feeding those animals, caring for those animals, um, exhibit them at the fair. And then if those animals go through kind of a, an auction, um, the proceeds from that animal will then help to go back to the producer to pay for that, the initial cost of the animal or for feed costs and that sort of thing. So what that's doing is that's giving a lot of youth that opportunity that may live in town or don't live on a farm or an acreage that are interested in livestock projects, um, an opportunity to get exposed to that and be involved in animal agriculture. And we see that kind of as a big growth area, um, especially in some of our swine um, and sheep projects, meat goats, and, and some of those that are a little bit less um, upfront investment. You get in, like I said, beef cattle, that's a pretty big, a lot more initial price um, to purchase one of those. Um, and in Iowa, you know, we're the number one swine producing states. We have a lot of pigs. And so yeah. some of those um, producers are offering that opportunity, which I think is a, it's a great um, experience for those kids um, that they realize they don't have to be brought up um, in the background of production agriculture and can still develop an interest um, in animal exhibition and showing animals. So it's a great program. Well, it sounds, you know, uh, there's no question, obviously, that, that 4-H is known for its agricultural efforts and, and uh, agricultural education of, of youth. But as you mentioned at the top of our conversation, they're also, um, you know, uh, 4-H is doing a, a, a number of other things like in STEM and, and home improvement. Uh, what are you doing in Iowa that's a little bit diverse um, or even in, uh, in other parts of, of the country where 4-H is getting involved with um, non sort of agricultural projects? Yeah. Um you know, so in Iowa, um, obviously, you know, we have our ag and, and ag-related projects. Um, we also have some of those, you know, the, the personal development, that civic engagement, um, communication and leadership that a lot of our um, 4-Hers are involved in. Um, and, you know, through their 4-H club meetings, they learn how to, to speak in front of people um, and learn those communication skills. Um, we still do quite a bit of our family and consumer science projects so our, you know, food and nutrition, um, which goes back to our, our heritage as well. Um, but that still is a strong project area in Iowa and in 4-H in general. Um, you know, there's still a lot of youth that bake a plate of cookies or a, an apple pie and take to the fair. Um, our sewing and needle arts projects and, and home improvement um, are still pretty big projects. Probably our one of our biggest projects um, is our photography. And so that's really, um, you know, increased as far as popularity and all the different things in the digital age that kids can do with photographs. And so sure. we've had a lot of different categories for photography, you know, back, you know, 20 years ago or less, um, we didn't have all the digital stuff. And so it was, you know, taking the camera and developing it in film and then using those as photos. Whereas now we can, you know, use different programs to edit and manipulate photographs. And so that's allowed um, youth to use their creativity um, in that project area. So there's a lot of, um, you know, our clothing and things that like that project areas um, 
that can get youth involved are obviously across the country. Um, the STEM, which is our science, technology, engineering, and math, um, is kind of the, the buzzword or has been the buzzword for the last few years. But within that, you know, um, like I talked about, our, our robotics project area and then aerospace and some of those that are involving um, kids in our, in our science projects that we can partner with schools and provide curriculum um, for those project areas. Yeah. Um, so, the, which which reminds me of as I'm, I've talked to a number of other organizations that are like minded to the 4-H, and um, you know everyone is kind of rooted and grounded in that uh, agricultural you know uh, heritage and uh, education, but also learning different types of leadership skills, life skills, and that sort of thing. But also to take it one step further trying to come out of maybe the rural communities and going into the suburbs and the urban centers. Uh, what is the 4-H doing to expand their reach, not just from a programmatic standpoint, but like literally from like a geographic standpoint too? Yeah. Um, I think the, one of the things that we're really trying to um, educate our youth is to, is to be advocates for, you know, agriculture, but the 4-H program in general, um, you know, you see on, TV and, and media and on social media um, about, you know, some of the, the states um, on the coast part of the country, California, and some of them um, where they're starting to, to threaten production agriculture and putting um, limits and new laws to limit what farmers and, and producers can do with their, their animals and things like that. And so um, that's one of the things that we are trying to do more with our older 4-H, you know, high school aged youth is to teach them about advocacy um, and issues about agriculture to then educate um, those folks that, you know, didn't grow up on a farm or don't have a lot of that ag background knowledge. And, and they're just kind of exposed to what they may see on the news or, or some of the topics and, and angles that may not be true um, stories and things like that, misinformation. And so trying to, to add that education piece to those folks that, are, you know, pretty much removed from agriculture and production um, to help them understand the value of agriculture and, and how people use that every day um, across the country and, and the need for, for farmers and agriculture and a lot of folks, you know, where their food comes from. A lot of them don't understand that stuff. And so trying to educate that and so they can use their 4-H background, um, you know, may, maybe they don't have a career in agriculture um, but maybe they're a lawyer or a doctor or something like that, but they could still use that background knowledge and those skills um, to advocate and educate other people when they're out of the 4-H program. Well, that's definitely a, a big reach. Um, you're training a new uh, generation of advocates um, in policy, <laughs> uh, which is definitely something I, I certainly understand as, as a uh, someone who spent my career previously in government. So, um, you know, when you do, you know, help young people understand the value of advocacy, regardless of how you, you know, feel about whatever topic it may be, those are transferable skills that can be utilized in, in other ways as well. So um, the 4-H is providing a, a great deal of value added for those that participate and for their communities. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? Um. Not that I can really think of. Um, yeah, we're, we're trying to, you know, continue to, to tell our story and work on um, recruitment and retention efforts to get more youth involved um, in our 4-H program, especially here in Iowa, as far as, um, you know, utilizing our, our school education and schools to take programs and, and educational curriculum um, into the schools and, and increase our reach that way. Hopefully we can, you know, Get those parents that are pushing those kids to do different activities that you know may not be interested or, or the next sports star um, that 4-H is an opportunity they can meet friends and, and partner with those volunteers and youth adult partnerships um, to have and learn those life skills going forward. Well I, I did not have the opportunity to participate in 4-H but I've met so many 4-H families uh, over the the last two decades and um, across Ohio, and everybody that I've met has just had the most positive experience. Um, so I, I would definitely, uh, I definitely see the value uh, in 4-H and, and uh, with bringing up a, a new generation of leaders. So uh, Mike, thank you again for joining us and for sharing the 4-H um, the experience with our listening audience. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. 
Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.